I've learned in these days uh, we need to something to smile about. And so uh, lately I've been in the habit of giving you something that would hopefully make you smile. I'm not a comedian, but uh, uh, in a different life maybe I would have been. I don't know. But a man tells the following story. My wife asked me to go shopping for her. She said, buy one carton of milk, and if they have avocados, get six. A short time later, I arrived back at the house with six cartons of milk. My wife said, why did you buy six cartons of milk? Six cartons of milk. I replied, they had avocados. All the men understood that. All the men got it the first time. Anybody didn't get it? Anybody didn't get it? <laughs> so I hope today's sermon can be clear and there will be no confusion about what I'm trying to say. We're beginning a series today. It's called This is Vision Month at Bethany Community Church. So we're going to be talking about what the church is. In fact, the title of today's message is What is a Church? A while back, we talked about what is a pastor for. And I got a lot of good feedback from that. A couple sermons on that and People, many people said, you know, we never thought of it that way before. So hopefully I can do the same with the church and enlighten you in ways that you will think about the church differently than perhaps you have in the past. It's often said that a church is not a place, but that is, uh, that's not entirely true. A church, I hope to prove to you today that the church does have a geographical center. And that geographical center it's where and when we are together with a clear vision of what we're trying to do together and working together to achieve that result. Um, just because you're interested in something doesn't make you a part of it. Just because you believe in something doesn't make you a part of it. Just because you're a fan doesn't make you a player. Here's an illustration. Maybe this will work. Uh, many of our sports are painful to talk about right now as New Englanders, but we can't talk about the Celtics, right? They made a good deal the other day, I guess, and those who, that's what people tell me. Uh, but let's say that there's a bunch of very tall men who, who like to wear uh, green uniforms with, uh, with a uh, leprechaun uh, uh, logo on the lapels, and um, they love basketball. These men love basketball. In fact, they, they carry a basketball around with them a lot of times, and they all keep one in the car just in case there's a pickup game at the local uh, playground. And these men, um, they're obsessed with basketball. In fact, they, they watch basketball, and, and they occasionally jump in and play basketball, and they have basketball goal at their house, and they're always out there shooting and playing shooting baskets. Uh, and, and they call themselves the Celtics. But they, they never meet and play together, though. And, and, and they never play a competitive game against uh, another opponent, and they never, they never practice together. They, 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 they don't have a contract with the team. They don't get... They don't have any benefit from the team. Uh, they're, they're, but they will tell you, if you met each of them, they would think because of what they believe about basketball 
and because they like basketball, and because they, 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 they do play basketball occasionally when everything's right, and, and they know a lot about basketball. They, they can tell you uh, the history of the Boston Celtics, and they know. I remember, you know, I, my, uh, I, took, I took my childhood pastor when his 80s, he came up to visit me, some of you remember, and I took him to a Red Sox game. I did not realize that the Red Sox were the most important team in his life back in Texas growing up. He was like an orphan who was, who was shipped from one foster home to another. But the constant in his life was listening to the radio because there was no baseball team in Texas in those days. It was a long time ago. And he would listen to the Boston Red Sox on the radio. And uh, we, I took him to the game, and what a great experience it was because he, we were, had people sitting all around us, and he, t- he's a very, he was a very outgoing person, extremely outgoing. And he, he knew more about the Red Sox than any of the people who lived from, in Boston. He was telling everybody everything he knew about the Red Sox. But he knew a lot about the Red Sox, but he wasn't on the team. Knowing a lot about the Celtics doesn't make you on the team. Loving the Celtics doesn't make you on the team. Carrying a basketball around, wearing green doesn't make you part of the team. It takes more than that. Teams need fans. You need people like that. You need people that are obsessed with you. Uh, Teams need friends. Teams need supporters. But if we confuse interest with commitment, it may be that we don't understand what it means to be a team. If you're part of the team, you have a contractual agreement. You show up for practice. You show up for meetings. You know your role. You get involved in the contest. You play in the game. Maybe you sit on the bench, but you're still part of the team. It's different to be a part of the team. A fan who imagines himself on the team is delusional. Well, I'm not calling you delusional. But perhaps you have the term a church defined as being interested when a church is people who are committed. So today, based on Acts chapter 2, and I'm not going to get into all the verses because I want to make the time, our time count as much as possible. So I'm not going to go read all the passages in Acts chapter 2. But that's Acts chapter 2 provides the template for what a church is. And I would, uh, would encourage you to read Acts chapter 2 this week. I want and to read chapters 1 and 2 this week and, and meditate on those chapters and let's together define what a church is. So today, based on Acts chapter 2, I'm going to define the church in three ways. A gathering of Christians who meet regularly to do things that help connect them with God, number one. Number two, an assembly of repenting, forgiven, redeemed persons surrendered to Jesus Christ. Number three, where God teaches us and we all help each other do the right things. Number one, a church is a gathering of Christians who meet regularly to do things that help them connect with God. In the Greek language, there are two different words that describe a people. Two different words that describe a people. And words really matter, especially biblical words. They really matter. And the word that the early apostles and Jesus chose, they were very precise in choosing the word that they chose. 
So the Greeks had that, like I said, they had two words. The first word was demos, and that was used to describe a, just to describe a, Greek, a group identity, a group identity. Like, uh, for example, a sentence that you would have heard in ancient Greece would be like this. In times of war, it is crucial for the demos, the E-M-O-S, the people to stand unified to protect our beloved city-state. I am, I'm a citizen of America. I'm, I'm, I'm a part of the people. So the word demos refers to a people or a population in a very general sense. And, and, there, and there's a lot of people uh, moving around uh, in all of our communities who consider themselves a part of the church. But we need to go to the word that was actually used time and time again. I could give you like 40, 50 verses, and we won't do that. I'm going I'm to give you several today, though. The word ecclesia, E-K-K-L-E-S-S-I-A, ecclesia is a word that refers uh, not to just a collective group of people within a community, but an ecclesia is the assembling of the demons. It, it's, it's the people that actually meet together. When we meet together, we're a church. At this moment, because we've come to this place today, and we're doing spiritual things together, we are being a church. And I don't mean just the invisible church of Jesus Christ in the world. We're being a specific church that God has a specific plan for, and God has a specific will for. We're going to talk later in the series about the seven churches in Revelation. God had, or Jesus himself, had John the Revelator in the book of Revelation write seven letters to seven churches, and each letter was different. So he wasn't just writing a letter to the demos, to the people, to all the people in Asia. He was writing a letter to specific churches, and each, each letter was different. Each church addressed, each letter addressed different qualities and different challenges that were in those particular churches. God has a plan, and God has a will for the local church. The local church is the assembly of God. And I'm not talking about the denomination, our denominational affiliation. It's actually called the Assemblies of God. And actually, that was quite a brilliant name that they gave it, because that is actually what God calls it. God calls Bethany Community Church an assembly of God. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Now let's read, we're going to read one passage of scripture that kind of, I think it's the template passage, and I, I was trying to avoid this passage because I was thinking, uh, everybody heard this so much, you know how when you hear something so much you kind of lose its impact, it's like your brain just goes, well I've heard that a hundred times. Well, let it have fresh revelation to you, okay? Therefore all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. This is Simon Peter on the day of Pentecost. This is the first, this is the first gathering of the ecclesia. 120 people were the first church. And because they begin to uh, have this phenomenon of, of all tongues of fire resting on them and speaking in other tongues, they uh, attracted the crowd uh, of this place called the Upper Room. We don't know exactly where the Upper Room was. There's debates about where it was. I was in a place in Israel that they call the Upper Room, but they tend to do that because that's, that brings tourists. 
and they, you know, they sell stuff and artifacts and all this stuff. So I was in a room that they call the upper room, and uh, I don't, we don't know if it really was, but that's irrelevant. Whether it was or not, there was an upper room, and it had some sort of portico, so the people, they could, Simon Peter could go out on, and when they begin to hear everybody in the 120, everybody from all these nations who were in town for Passover, all these people who were in town for Passover from all the different nations around, around Asia and, and the Middle East, all these could come together. They were all hearing the praises of God in their own language. So that attracted them. And so Simon Peter steps forward and they say, these people are drunk. And he's saying, these people are not drunk, but they have received the promise of the Father. Jesus has arrived back in heaven. His mission's been accomplished. The world has now been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And we know that because the Spirit, Holy Spirit has descended. We know Jesus has arrived, mission accomplished. Now it's time for the church to be the church. So let all of Israel sure know be assured of this, God hath made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So it includes us. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Boy, if he only lived today. Uh, those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to the number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property. Circle the word together. They were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together. Circle, meet together. Meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. Circle, their homes. And ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. A book that I have um, borrowed from in my research for the series is called One Assembly. And I'm not going to get into what, what uh, the author is trying to, uh, all the points he's trying to make. But I did read this excerpt, uh, this story in the book that I thought, of all I could say in Greek and words and all of that, doesn't really give you a picture of what a church is, but this little story does. So uh, uh, indulge me while I read it to you. A married couple, Oleg and Marina, brand new believers in Russia, knew they wanted a church. They learned the gospel from an American missionary, but there was no evangelical Protestant church in their 20,000-person city in the Ural Mountains of Russia. Lord, give us a church in our city, they prayed. One day in the market, Oleg and Marina met a watch repairman named Sergei. He had been in prison for stealing, but now the 75-year-old man was a Christian. So with his wife, Zina, who had been a hardened atheist until her husband shared the gospel with her, Oleg and Marina noticed how Sergei used words like God, blessing, and prayer. Finally, Marina asked, are you a Christian? When Sergei said he was, they said, so are we. And we've been praying to find more believers in order to have a church. 
Sergio said, you must have been, you must have been, because three days ago I prayed the same thing. So Marina went to Will, the American who had shared the gospel with them, and asked if he would teach Oleg's Sergio Zina and a single friend of theirs named Olga, five people in all, and he agreed. They met on the second floor of Sergi's house above the kitchen in a room that serves as a bedroom and a living room. For seven weeks, Will explained the necessity of gospel belief, apostolic teaching, fellowship, and accountability, the Lord's Supper, prayer, prayer, service, giving, worship, and evangelism. He talked about the church from Matthew 18 and Acts 2. He then asked a group of five, will you commit to these things together? Oleg said, except for the Lord's Supper, we already do these things. The five of them split up a loaf of freshly baked bread and ate it. Then they passed around a cup to each to drink. They were now a church. They gave themselves a name, Christ Church. All of this actually happened a few years ago, by the way. Now more family members and friends have come to faith and joined, of course, from one week they were in one week they were a multi-ethnic, multinational church, including Udmarts, Russians, Americans, Will and his wife, Ukrainians, and a Tartar, which is a uh, Turkish person. They all also belong to their number. That little story describes what a church does. You see, what we've done throughout history is we borrow from culture. And, and you can't help it. It's not, it's not wrong to borrow from culture. Don't, don't get all spiritual on me because you might come to church and see something that the culture's doing, right? Because that's, we're, we're, we're creatures of our culture, whatever that culture is. So, but, but we often sanctify a lot of things that aren't really necessarily the church. For instance, in 600 AD, the Pope of Rome patterned worship in the church after the Roman Empire and after the, after the, uh, after the uh, um, what do you call those guys that have the Roman Empire? I'm going blank. Emperors. They patterned after the emperor. So that's where you get all the rituals of high church. All the rituals of high church. I hate to inform you, didn't come from Acts chapter 2. And I'm not, there's nothing wrong with the rituals of high church. I'm not knocking it. Some of you love that. Some of you miss that. That's no big deal to me. Fine. But robes and miters and, um, and incense, you know, because they would go burn incense to the emperor. That, that's one way a lot of Christians got martyred because they would be called in and they would be told, bring, burn incense to the murder, to the to the emperor, or we're going to execute you. And the Christians would say, no, we will only give burn incense to Jesus. So, so all, of that, all, of the, all of the circumstances, pomp and circumstances that are in a high church, liturgical church, uh, came, it didn't come from the Bible. It came from the culture. And then, of course, in the 1950s, all these Baptist churches were, uh, saw the, the corporations, Ford, 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 Ford Motor Company and General Electric, and they created uh, church boards because that's what the corporations were doing. So, so they, they created board structures because that's what the corporation was doing. And uh, I would say that the, the latest thing in the churches, we, we, we pattern a lot of our activities after the uh, entertainment culture. The entertainment culture that we're in now, a lot of things we're doing in the church are are patterned after the entertainment culture. Now, it's, it's, 
it, it's, it's all, it's, I'm not knocking any of it. I'm not saying any of it's wrong. But what you see in that little story of Oleg and Marina, of people simply learning the word of God together, having communion together, praying for one another, being accountable to one another, that's the function of a church. All of this stuff we're doing up here on the platform, that could all change. And Jesus wouldn't care. But he would care if we abandoned the basic... Let me give you some basic function of church. Let me finish the sentence. Let me give you some more scriptures that have the word ecclesia or ecclesia, however you want to pronounce it. It said in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, for a whole year they met together with the church, ecclesia, and they taught a great number of people. Acts chapter 15, verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, ecclesia, and the apostles and elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. 1 Corinthians 4, 17, this is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Colossians 4.16, and when the letter had been read among you, have it also read in the church, in the ecclesia of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Then there's Matthew 18.17. If he, talking about an offender who will not repent and be reconciled, um, if he refuses to listen to you, uh, I think I made a mistake in, in transcribing that, but you, you get the point. If he refuses to listen to you, tell it to the ecclesia. Tell it to the church. Let him be to you as a Gentile tax collector if he refuses to listen to you. So nothing in these scriptures, nothing that I've just read to you can take place if we don't meet together. It, it, nothing of this place. Um, take that last one where he's talking about discipline. He's talking about if someone sins against you, if they, if they, and, and I, I've, 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 I've been a part of that process with people who stole money from other people in the church, uh, different kinds of ways that people really, really hurt each other in the church. And I've been a part of that process. It's a painful process. But he's, he's saying if, 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 if there is no church and, and there is no structure, local structure called the church that has any authority in our lives, none of what I've just read to you can happen. You can't read a, well, so I'm going to get on my back porch and I'm going to read a letter to the church. And somehow the Holy Spirit will take my words and he will, trans, he will transmit them to every person in the world who is a part of Christ's invisible church. No, you can't do that. If you are going to have a structure where people are taught and they care for one another and they're, they get involved in each other's lives, Man, I, I got so blessed a few minutes ago when I walked out and I saw specific people in this room worshiping God very, uh, very enthusiastically. And some of you, I know your stories. I know how God has changed your life. I not only know how God has changed your life, I know how being part of a church fellowship has changed your life. I know how that you have experienced Jesus because you went to a church. Because what are we? We're the body of Christ. Can you really meet Jesus if you don't hang out with his body? Well, I just hang out with his words. I just read his words. That's all I need. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. You know, 
There was this hit song one time, me and Jesus got our own thing going, me and Jesus got it all worked out, me and Jesus got our own thing going, we don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. <laughs> no, I need somebody to tell me what it's all about. The, the first line of the first verse of that song is, we don't need any fancy preaching, we don't need any fancy church. No, I, I don't need a fancy church, but I need a church. I need the body of Christ because the personality and the gifts of Jesus have been distributed among all of you. Among all of you. Not, not, not any single one of you have it all. But everything that Jesus is has been deposited. A little piece of Jesus has been deposited in each of you. And one of his gifts has been given to each of you. Every one of you carries around with you one of the gifts of Jesus. So you have the potential of doing so. And if I'm going to experience all the gifts of Jesus, if I'm going to experience all the personality of Jesus, if I'm going to experience all the love of Jesus, I'm going to experience all the truth of Jesus, I'm going to have to come to you. Because you're carrying a piece of Jesus. Remember when, when Israel left, uh, when, when Israel left uh, uh, Egypt? They all had to eat of the lamb. They all had to partake of the lamb. They all had to feast on the lamb. They had to ingest the lamb, the physical lamb. Well, when, when, when we left sin, we left the world of sin with a piece of the lamb in our hearts and in our lives. So every one of you in this place who have confessed Christ as your Savior, every one of you who have been transformed by His grace, you're carrying a piece of the lamb in you. And I will not experience all of Jesus until I experience you. Secondly, a church is an assembly of repenting. And I, I said, you know, I actually changed that word. I didn't, I didn't uh, alert the guys in the back, so it's not their fault. But I actually changed that word from repentant to repenting. Because I, was, I, was, I, I couldn't sleep. I got up at 3 o'clock this morning. I couldn't sleep. Because I, I just feel such a burden for this. And I don't, I don't, think, this is, I don't think this is a sermon you're going to go, boy, that was one of the best sermons you ever preached. I'm, you're not going to do that. I know that. I, but that's okay. I can't, be, I can't be incredible every week, right? <laughs> uh, but this might be, uh, this is an important sermon, though. This is a real important message. And so I changed that. They just changed it to repenting because if we are part of the church, we are, we are, we are constantly repenting. We're, we're in a trajectory of repenting. We're forgiven, redeemed, persons surrendered to Christ. Now this is really important because in the 20th century, uh, a pseudo-Christianity has emerged that loves to quote Acts 2.21. And I like to quote Acts 2.21 as well. Acts 2.21, it's all in this passage, says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But we take it completely out of context. And so we adopt this abbreviated definition of redemption. This abbreviated definition of conversion is a better word. We, we adopt a abbreviated definition of, of conversion, and by extension, we've perverted the definition of the church by just saying, everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, and, and so how that, how that gets translated is if we can just get someone to say, I believe in Jesus, you're saved. You're all set. You don't need nothing else. You don't need anything else. Well, Simon Peter didn't, didn't, didn't learn that way of leading people to salvation. 
and subsequently be a part of the church. Uh, if you want to know how our founding fathers would have, would have said in next, next steps class, the class leading to church membership would have gone like this. Because if you go on down to verse 36, see, Peter, Peter didn't stop in verse 21. In fact, the Bible says, and I never saw this before. I, I love, you know, I've been reading the Bible for 100 years, seems like. And I, every time I read it, uh, Stephanie, I see something I didn't see before. I say, how could this book be so amazing that I keep seeing things I never saw before? I never saw it says, and Peter with many words. And one translation, he went on and on. <laughs> I thought, boy, that's me. So, so we have a bunch of stuff that Simon Peter said, but we don't know all the stuff he didn't say. They, they, got, they got a long sermon. They got a long sermon before they got, they got invited to, to salvation or the church membership. They didn't just get, call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. All right, everybody, want to call on the name of the Lord? Man, 5,000 people just got saved. They all said Jesus. No. He gave them a very thorough orientation to what it meant to repent of your sins. See, how can you ask someone to re- how can you ask someone to be saved if they don't have anything to be saved from? If you're not drowning, well, how how, of- how offended would you be? I would be terribly offended if I'm if I'm at the ocean, and I'm not much of an ocean person, but I, I'll pretend. If I'm in the ocean and I'm swimming, and you come out and start dragging me out of the water, I'm saving you. No, you're not saving me. I wasn't drowning, nut. Well, well, I got a report back to my, my lifeguard crew that I saved a certain number of people this week. So you got to pretend that you're being saved. No. To be saved, you got to be out there coming up, save me! And you go down, save me! Because you know you have to be rescued and you cannot rescue yourself. You understand that you're, you're a permeated with a sinful condition. You're permeated with a selfishness, a pride, arrogance, all this stuff. You're permeated with it and it's taken you under unless somebody comes and rescues you. So Simon Peter says, I want to make sure you know that you're a sinner And then we'll talk about you being saved. Because I want you to be convinced that you're a sinner first. I know that that I'm losing some people right now. I'm sorry. I'm not losing one person here. (laughs) Simon Peter was not saying, repent of your role in crucifying Jesus. He was saying the crucifixion of Jesus was necessary to solve your deeper problem, and that is that we're all corrupted by sin. Scripture says, Scripture says, all we like sheep have gone astray, have turned to our own way, but God has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. We are all deeply selfish, jealous, deeply independent from God, and the directives of his word. We all want to have our own way all the time. That is why we are deeply discontent. I know that depression has many sources. And I'm not classifying all depression this way. 
But some of our depression doesn't come from physiological defects, but from our unfulfilled desires that we cannot have what we want to have. Our knowing that we're not all we should be. And Jesus comes to save us from ourselves. Therefore, did I read the verse? I don't think I read it, did I? Therefore, let all Israel be assured that this God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles. See, I've seen people come to Jesus who were cut to the heart. I've seen, I've seen, people, I've seen people weep when they came to Jesus. And I'm not saying you have to weep. I'm not saying that. But uh, uh, that's an interesting thing before this idea arose that, there were, that, 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 in fact, I've heard preachers say, don't talk to people about sin or you'll give them a sin consciousness. What in the heck does that mean? Give them a sin consciousness. I mean, it, then, the, then the Bible is guilty of giving everyone a sin consciousness. You know, we, we just take psychological gobbledygook and we, we apply it to the scripture and it doesn't belong there. I don't know what a consciousness is. <laughs> you, 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 know, you know, there's two words, and, and I'm not critical. I, 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 I read a lot of psychological literature, and I really appreciate a lot of the work psychologists do. So if you're a psychologist or you're in that field, I'm not disrespecting you. But, but there's two words that psychologists hate. Prove it. So the Bible says, prove all things, hope as it, which is good. So I'm not saying don't believe what psychologists say, but I'm saying with everything in life, don't just gobble it up and start repeating it like it means something to you when you don't even know what it means. Sorry, I got off there. Well, that's not my note. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children. See, this was not a message of condemnation. This wasn't beating them over the head. This was a message of hope. This was like a friend of a friend of mine went, he had prostate cancer, and the doctors had given him a bad report. And he went, decided to go to a different doctor. He went down to Leahy Clinic and he told them the bad report. And the doctor looked at him and said, yeah, it's really bad, but I'm good. And he took care of him and he lived. You know? This is not a message of condemnation. That's what a lot of people hear. They say, well, if you tell anyone they're a sinner, they're, they're... no, it's like, no, it's like the doctor saying, you have cancer, but I'm good. I can take care of it. Hallelujah. I, I just think something, something's about to happen in this church that we've been, we've been craving and praying for. Something's about to happen here. So stick around. C.S. Lewis said, there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those who say to God, those to whom God says, all right, then, have it your way. <laughs> See, that's what a sinner is. A sinner is, oh, a sinner does, drinks or gets drunk or commits adultery. Yeah, those are sins, yes, but uh, a sinner is someone who says no to God, to no to Jesus. 
Jesus. To be a sinner is to be your own highest authority. To be a Christian is to have made Jesus Christ your own highest authority. See, one, one thing we must stop doing is in the name of inclusiveness, stop preaching for deep repentance and life change. If you're not a Christ follower, the worst thing that can be said of Christians like me is we're not trying to convert you. The message of inclusiveness has its roots, by the way, in the gospel. You know that? It has its roots in the gospel. But when it's taken too far, if we lose the primary power of the attract, we, we lose the primary attractiveness to attractiveness of the church when we give up our difference, when we give up being different. Acts 9-2, and Paul asked for letters to the synagogue. This is before Paul became a Christian. In Damascus, so he found any who belonged to the way. These were people who were different. They, belonged, they didn't call them Christians in those days. They called them followers of the way because they were different. Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Consider the words of Simon Peter again. With many words, he warned them and pleaded with them. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. See, he didn't just say those who, those who said Jesus rose from the dead, which that's important, that's necessary. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to the number that day. They were added to what? What were they added to? A church. They were added to a church. When the Holy Spirit came, he did not just bring us salvation, which he did, by the way. He also brought us a family. He brought us relationships. He brought us a representation of the body of Christ. I love the church, by the way. Talking about differences, that was my point. Um, Miroslav Ball is the director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale University. And he wrote this in his book, A Public Faith. Christian communities will be able to survive and thrive in contemporary societies only if they attend to their difference from surrounding cultures and subcultures. The following principle stands. Whoever wants the Christian communities to exist must want their difference from the surrounding culture, not their blending into it. As a consequence, Christian communities must manage their identity by actively engaging in boundary maintenance. Christians, without boundaries, communities dissolve. The, the question is not whether there should be boundaries. This is whether the, their nature, their nature, what their nature should be, and how they should be maintained. I hope you, that's, that, if you have the app that's in your notes, I hope you'll go meditate on that quote this week. Think about what that means. What does that mean? What does boundary maintenance mean? What, what does it mean? to attend to our differences. See, because we have this pressure. There's this pressure that if we're going to reach the world, we have to be like them. Well, sometimes, in some ways, that's true. That's where the cultural stuff comes in. So in some ways, it's, it's certainly appropriate to adapt to the culture of the world around us. And we, God has not just called us to be weirdos for no reason. But on the other hand, what will draw people to us is they see there's something different about us. I don't know if you've heard the testimony. It's worth watching. It's all over YouTube called The Son of Hamas. One of the uh, 
uh, a man whose father is still one of the founding members of Hamas. And uh, he began to question the Quran and its teachings. And started out by meeting some Jewish people. He, at one point, started working for Jewish intelligence. And he met a he met a Christian cab driver one day in Jerusalem and who gave him a Bible and he went home and began to read the Bible. And the, the difference he saw between Jesus' words and the Quran shocked him, especially, he said, the first scripture I saw that rocked me and, and melted my mind was love your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you. He got, he's like, who is this guy, Jesus. Now, now, what if he had given a Bible and it had said, it is, now he's in an Arab culture. What if he had given a Bible and it just repeated everything the Quran said? He was saying, well, I'm all set. I hate my enemies. <laughs> I'm not saying every Muslim hates their enemies, so don't, please. But if you read all the Quran and the Hadiths and all that, there's a lot of pretty nasty stuff in there. So anyway, he became, he said, he said, Christ changed my life. Christ changed my life. It's a tremendous testimony. So let's, uh, let's be different. Finally, a church is where God teaches us and we all help each other do the right things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, Acts 2.42. Revelation 1.11, I said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. As I said in the beginning, these letters were all different. Far from church being a place where you have to get your act together, it's actually the opposite. Instead, a church is a place where we admit our ignorance. We admit our brokenness, our unchristlikeness. And if we function as we should, we can, defend, we, can, we can defend one another. We can speak the truth in love. We can practice our vulnerability and correct without expecting change overnight. So that's one thing I love about a, a church is functioning right. Someone can come to me and, and correct me. But they, they don't reject me if I don't change right away. This is so biblical that we, we, we're patient with one another. There's nothing like the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's nothing to compare with a church that's functioning according to the original template of the scripture. There's nothing like it. Amen? It's kind of like, it's kind of like marriage. When marriage is good, there's nothing like it. When it's bad, there's nothing like it. <laughs> Finally, God, the Bible says God wants us to grow up to know the whole truth and tell it in love. Like Christ in everything, we take our lead from Christ, who is the source of everything we do. He keeps us in step with each other. His very breath and blood flow through us, nourishing us so that we will grow up healthy in God, robust in love. That scripture is about the church. So, in conclusion, I want to ask the prayer partners to come because I'm going to invite you to come and be prayed for for whatever your needs are. The, church, the prayer partners are the body of Christ functioning. So I want them to come. Let me say this, though, in conclusion. If I could use one word to describe how many of us feel right now, 
That word would be disillusionment. We've lost faith, many of us, in every great institution that was trusted by a previous generation. And the church is not spared from this disappointment and cynicism. For some of you here today, Bethany Community Church is your last stop on the church journey. You're not thinking of walking away from Jesus, but you're thinking of walking away from church. I understand. I'm reminded of the words of a song that I wrote years ago. Things we've trusted in no longer are in place. Rules we've written have been gradually erased. But as we return to God's never-changing word, I find truth undisturbed. Our disillusionment is a part of God's plan. I'm telling you, I know you don't believe it, some of you, but this, this disillusionment in this moment is a part of God's plan. It has removed the pressure to be like anything we've previously experienced. Now we can just listen to God. Now we can just go back to the Word and say, we're going to do it the way the Word says to do it. We don't have to think about what somebody in Orange County, California is doing or somebody in Chicago, Illinois is doing in their church. We can actually create whatever we want. We can be whatever kind of church we want to be. So, would you like to join in being an assembly of people who open our Bibles together and whatever we see, we will aim our lives toward that? No one will have more authority than the Scripture and we will only aspire to look like Jesus. If you agree, would you say amen? Father, take the word, the bread of life. Take anything that I might have said that would be misunderstood, confusing, or offensive, and I pray, God, you will sanctify it. And take the truth of your word that this thing called the church is your residence in the world. It's where you live and breathe and speak and do what you don't do anywhere else, but you do it through us, and then you send us out to be the salt and light in the world. May we do that in the name of Jesus. Please stand, and let me invite you to come forward. If you're here, any need that you have in your life today, maybe, maybe you're that person who needs to take that step of faith to, to confess your sins and then confess Christ as your Savior. And knowing that your life can be transformed in a second if you will do that. God bless you. I'm going to open up the altars and wait just a minute before I dismiss you to give people time to come.